0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
2: My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the Revolution to fractious Civil War, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman.
0: Useless
1: Information
2: You know, when I was a kid, I ate what was probably the worst breakfast cereal every single morning. It was called Kellogg Sugar Smacks. I think today it's called Honey Smacks.
0: And I just
2: loved it. Bowl after bowl I would eat. You know, perhaps the fact that it was 56% sugar by weight had something to do with my love of it. Okay, so I later learned that the sugar was bad for me. But I always read every single word that was printed on the cereal boxes. And the one thing I noticed at a very early age is that nearly every single cereal box that I ever read, whether it was manufactured by Kellogg's or Post, that the cereals were made in Battle Creek, Michigan. So it came as no surprise years later when I learned that Battle Creek was commonly referred to as, you ready, the Cereal City. Well, it was during the evening of Wednesday, March 20th of 1935 that Battle Creek would be thrust into the national spotlight, and this time it had absolutely nothing to do with cereal. The entire event began aboard the Grand Trunk Railroad's International Limited, and it had started its run in Chicago's Dearborn Station, and it was traveling in a somewhat northeasterly direction as it made its way to its final destination, which was Montreal. Aboard was a Canadian customs official whose job it was to question each passenger, you know, before they entered the country. This is pretty routine. And, you know, this is usually just a formality and easily completed, but not on this day. You see, a 60-year-old woman refused to answer any of the customs officer's questions. While she was clearly Caucasian, she refused to identify her race. When asked about her religion, again, she refused to answer. In fact, she wouldn't state what the name of any relative was that she had in the United States, what her occupation was, or the value of any effects that she was bringing into the country. The most specific piece of information the official could extract from this woman was that she planned to stay in, quote, some hotel in Montreal. Now, this is probably going to come as a big shock to you. The decision was made to deny her entry into Canada, and she'd need to leave the train at the next station, which just happened to be... Battle Creek, Michigan. Upon arrival at the station, the woman refused to leave the train and had to be forcibly removed by local officers. She was dressed in a fur coat, a blue dress, and worn shoes, and put up quite a struggle that resulted in bruise marks on her arm. She was talking incoherently and appeared to be undergoing some sort of mental distress, so the mystery woman was transported by ambulance to the nearby Lila Hospital. During the struggle to get her off the train, a plain white envelope fell to the station platform. Now, before I tell you what was in the envelope, I should mention I've never handled a bill larger than $100 to this day. This envelope contained $173,505 in hard, cold cash. This included 14 $10,000 bills, one $5,000 bill, 27 $1,000 bills, three $500 bills, and one, more reasonable, $5 bill. Yet oddly, none of this was as interesting as the collection of valuable jewels that were also found. One large black jewel box contained 18 rings, two earrings, 12 bracelets, nine bar pins, three neck chains, two wristwatches, three dress clips, one pendant, two lorgnettes those are opera glasses, and then there was an envelope that contained broken pieces of jewelry. But that wasn't all. There were two smaller jewelry boxes that contained a pearl necklace in each one. The total estimated value of the jewels was $500,000. On top of all that, after the train departed the station, a porter proceeded to clean her private compartment and found $691 wrapped in a towel she'd attempted to hide the money, and that was turned over to authorities when the train reached Lansing, Michigan. In all, she was carrying $674,196 in cash and jewels. That's worth nearly $13 million today. So the question was, had she robbed a bank? Was she an international jewel thief? The answer was neither. That's because in addition to all the cash and jewels, this lady of mystery had been carrying numerous documents related to financial matters and various court suits and that allowed authorities to tentatively identify her as a wealthy eccentric named Isabel Mackay. She asserted she had been kidnapped from the train and that, quote, I have Federal Reserve Bank receipts for the money and I intend to get it back. She was born Isabel Agnes Mulhall on April 20th of 1875 in St. Louis, and she was the only child of Susan J. and John F. Mulhall. According to various newspaper reports, Both of her parents came from extremely wealthy families and her father John was a multi-millionaire silver mine owner. When Isabel reached the age of 14, her parents decided to divorce, at which point Isabel was sent off to complete her education at a convent. In 1893, Isabel, who was considered to be, quote, one of the most beautiful girls in the world, was chosen to be the beauty queen at the World's Columbian Exhibition, a.k.a. the Chicago World's Fair. When the Planters Hotel in St. Louis opened one year later, Isabel was chosen to be the central model for a large mural that was painted on one of its walls. It's said that the breathtaking Isabel had many suitors, and among them was a wealthy stockbroker named Albert Royal Delmont, and the two would marry at her mom's residence on March 25th of 1896. They then moved to Chicago and they lived a life of luxury. Well, that is until a stock market tanked and Albert lost nearly everything. In 1901, Isabel asked for a formal separation and the two were officially divorced on September 17th of 1903. Isabel was granted $2,400 per year in alimony, which is about $70,000 per year today, and she opted to pick up and move to New York City to pursue a career on the stage. It wasn't long before Isabel landed a role in A Country Girl, which was playing at Daly's Theater, which was on Broadway. On February 10th of 1906, Isabel was staying at an acquaintance's house in Hastings-on-Hudson, New York, which lies about 20 miles or 32 kilometers straight up the Hudson River from Manhattan. Edgar Purdy, who Isabel employed as a chauffeur, suddenly broke into her room and put a revolver to her head. Purdy, who was drunk as a skunk, professed his love for Isabel, even though he was married and the father of five children. Slight complication there. He also demanded $10,000 from her so he could start a business down in Mexico. Now somehow Isabel wrestled the revolver away from Purdy and he made a run for it. Isabel then turned the weapon over to the police and a warrant was issued for Purdy's arrest. Fast forward to March 21st, and Isabel's back in her apartment at the Hotel Stratford, which is located at 11 East 32nd Street in Manhattan. Purdy called to speak to Isabel, but her doctor somehow intercepted the call. And as he kept Purdy on the line, the doctor signaled to another man that, hey, you know, go contact the police, I got this guy on the phone. So the officers went and they found Purdy at a nearby tavern and arrested him. He was in possession of a gun and charged with carrying a concealed weapon. Purdy denied all the charges and was released on $500 bond. Lawyers for the two sides discussed the case, and it was agreed that if Purdy stayed away from Isabel, no further charges would be filed. What's interesting about this somewhat sensational story is that it would mark the first time that Isabel's name would be thrust into the headlines of New York City's newspapers. But it wouldn't be the last, not by far. At this point in Isabel's story, a man named Sidman, or Sid Mackay enters the picture. He had started his career in 1884 by operating a cigar stand on the ground floor of a Chicago office building that was home to several brokerage firms. And after the dealing was done for the day, his stand became a place for the brokerage clients to hang out and shoot the breeze. It didn't take him long to realize that the only people who were earning money, always earning money, were the brokers. You know, even if the client's stock declined greatly, you know, took a nosedive, the broker was still guaranteed his percentage. And that was a world that Sid knew he needed to be part of. He started small, setting up what was referred to as a bucket shop at his cigar stand. You know, players would simply bet on whether a stock would rise or fall in value, and then Sid would get his cut of every single bet. And it wasn't long before Sid was raking in the dough and setting up additional bucket shops in both Detroit and Milwaukee. With a sudden influx of money, Sid needed a place to invest his cash. And he set his sights on Hammond, Indiana, which was located at the far end of Chicago's newly constructed elevated railway. Sid realized that Hammond was about to experience significant growth and he wisely invested in real estate there. But perhaps his most significant investment there was his 1906 purchase of the Hammond Tribune, which he renamed the Lake County Times. Today, the paper simply called the Times, but to house his new newspaper, he constructed the five-story Hammond building. On the second floor of that building, he set up the offices for his bucket shop, which he had since transformed into what we would call a brokerage today. But Hammond proved too small for the man and he left all his operations in the hands of his brothers and he set his sights on the big time, New York City. And he was incredibly successful in New York and became a millionaire many times over. One estimate placed his fortune in excess of 20 million dollars. Adjusted for inflation, Sid Mackay was worth more than a half a billion dollars. Now, it's unknown how Isabel and Sid met, but on July 20th, 1909, the two tied the knot in a rush secret ceremony. You know, they eloped. And at first, the couple seemed ideal for each other. They traveled to places like England, France, and Bermuda, and Sid lavished Isabel with gifts, homes, and just about anything that she desired. In 1919, the two signed reciprocal wills leaving all of their worldly possessions to one another. And after that, everything just seemed to fall apart. In 1923, Isabel announced she was leaving her entire fortune of more than $450,000, that's about $7 million today, to the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, the SPCA, to construct the largest animal hospital ever built in New York City. It was to be known as the Steve Silverman Memorial, no, 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 uh, the Isabel Mackay Memorial, and it would feature a marble bust of Isabel. She already had it made at that point. It had a marble bust of Isabel, and it was to sit on a pedestal that would contain her ashes. In addition, inscribed over the entrance of the hospital would be the following words, quote, The more I saw of people the more I thought of dogs. Now those words weren't original to her, but you get the point. This instantly brought Isabel to the attention of the national press and nearly all interpreted her generous donation in just one way, that Isabel Mackay was a first-class kook. In a January eleventh, 1923 interview, Isabel stated, quote, Just say it's all I have in the world or will have from trusts that will come to me. "'Even my jewels will be sold in the money given to the memorial fund,' she continued. "'I can do anything with animals, and mine have always been so well-trained "'that I could take them to a friend's home for bridge and know they would not be an annoyance. "'Indeed, I've been told it is a pity I could not have trained children. "'They would have been so well-mannered,' Isabel added. "'My husband has nothing to do with this. "'It is not his money. It is mine. It is all my affair.' Interestingly, she got the money by cashing in the homes and the jewels that her husband had given her, and the only pet that Isabel had at the time was a nine-year-old parrot. I'm guessing that parrot was very well trained. Now, Isabel's original plan was to leave her entire estate to the building of a hospital for terminally ill children, but what changed her mind was the St. Thomas Episcopal Church. It was located directly across the street from the couple's home, which was at 18 West 53rd Street in Manhattan, and Isabel couldn't tolerate the sound that was produced when the boys' choir would sing. In an effort to drown them out, she would take her Victrola, place it near an open window, and then use an amplifier to blast her music towards the church. In her mind, she realized that the terminally ill children in the hospital that she wanted to fund they could theoretically grow up to become annoying choir boys. So Isabel rewrote her will so that all the money went to the building of an animal hospital. I'm not making this up. By this time, her husband Sid had moved out of their apartment. He could no longer live with Isabel's incessant nagging, complaining, and her violent temper. The two would officially file for separation in 1925. On August 16, 1928, while traveling aboard the Cunard Lancastria, Isabel caused such a commotion that the crew had no choice but to lock her in the ship's brig for the remainder of the trip. Isabel's behavior would become increasingly erratic and eccentric as the years went on. In 1930, her mother grew so concerned that she asked a judge to declare Isabel incompetent and to be appointed her daughter's special guardian. But the court went even further. Isabel was not only judged incompetent, but she was confined to the Shepherd and Enoch Pratt Psychiatric Hospital in Baltimore. About six months later, that's uh, May 9, 1931, a car drove up to the hospital, then a heavily veiled woman exited the car and entered the building. Isabel quickly changed clothes with this unidentified woman, walked out of the building, and was driven away to freedom. Isabel fled to New York, where she challenged the Maryland order that had judged her incompetent. Now, while this case was pending, Isabel filed a $100,000 lawsuit against the Cunard line for alleged mistreatment, you know, because she was thrown in the brig, and that brought further attention to her possible insanity. Yet, the New York Supreme Court ruled on November 7th of 1931 that Isabel was sane as she regained control of her personal property, reportedly being $510,000 in value. That's about $8.8 million today. And this brings us full circle back to where the story began, March 20th of 1935. Isabel Mackay had been forcibly removed from the train in Battle Creek, Michigan, and she was undergoing a psychiatric evaluation at the Lila Hospital there. Well, it fell upon Mrs. Eugene Ambos, who's a friend of Isabel's, and Isabel's 82-year-old mother, Susan Mulhall, to untangle this entire mess. Upon arrival in Battle Creek, the two demanded that Isabel be released from the hospital, which the staff reluctantly agreed to do. Dr. William Dugan of the hospital stated, quote, Mrs. McKee was not confined here long enough for us to determine definitely what was the cause of her mental condition. Yet the two women were unsuccessful in their attempt to get Isabel's fortune in cash and jewelry turned over to them. Both Police Chief Hugh Gordon and Grand Trunk Railway officials were Agreed that they would not release the loot without a court order. Well, shortly after that, Maurice H. Wolpe produced a writ of attachment that was issued by a Chicago court, and he charged that Isabel was indebted to him for $14,509.74. It was argued before the court that she was, quote, about to dispose of, conceal, and defraud her creditors, you know, by crossing the border into Canada. Well, fell Philippon Circuit Court Judge Blaine W. Hatch to determine who was the rightful owner of the cash and jewels. Now, two doctors who had examined Isabel at the hospital took to the stand and testified that they did find her fully capable of handling her own affairs. On Saturday, March 23rd, Isabel took the stand in her own defense. She was able to provide withdrawal slips for $172,000. You know, they had taken $173,505 from her, so that was almost the whole amount of the cash they took from her. In addition, she was able to describe each and every piece of jewelry in detail. When questioned as to why she had been carrying such a large fortune with her, she told the court that this was an unusual and that she had little trust in banks, keep in mind it's just you know five, six years after the stock market crash. As for jewels, she stated, quote, My day for jewels is quite over. Her plan was to go to Canada and sell many of her jewels there simply because she felt she can get a better price for them. By the end of the day, Judge Hatch was satisfied that Isabel had proven her identity, her ability to handle her own affairs, and that the cash and jewels were hers he ordered that everything, minus the funds claimed by Maurice Wolpe, be returned to Isabel. Now, as Isabel read down her list of jewels, there was a brief gasp in the courtroom when she stated that a string of sapphires was missing. Well, to everyone's relief, she later found them in her handbag. From the courtroom, Isabel quickly went to the express office and arranged that her jewels would be shipped back to Chicago. Then, later that evening, she checked out of her room at the Kellogg Hotel. On April 15th, Isabel's lawyers were able to prove that she did not owe Mr. Wolpe anything, and the remainder of her fortune was returned to her. And that should be the end of the story, but keep in mind we're talking about Isabel here. It was not. Feeling that she'd been subjected to ridicule and deprived of both her property and fortune Isabel filed a $1 million lawsuit against the city of Battle Creek, several policemen, the Grand Trunk Railroad, Lila Hospital, the Associated Press, and several other people. Now, the bulk of these cases were tossed out, but a federal judge did allow the suit against the railroad to proceed. And proceed it did, albeit very slowly. Four years later, the case was still pending when there was a sudden, shocking turn of events. On April 27, 1939, Isabel Mackay died in New York City. She was 64 years of age. On November 21st of that same year, attorneys for her estate indicated they weren't prepared to move forward against Grand Trunk, and the judge assigned to the case dismissed the lawsuit. Now remember her unusual will that left everything to the SPCA for the construction of the Isabel Mackay Memorial Animal Hospital? Well that idea was out the window. She had since written a new will. Fearing that she could have been murdered, one clause specified that an autopsy be performed, you know, to determine whether or not she had died from natural causes. It further specified that $25,000, which is about $473,000 today, that $25,000 be set aside to prosecute anyone who may have had a hand in her death. The document did direct that her ashes be scattered over, quote, the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. The bulk of her estate was left to the Seeing Eye Incorporated, which is located in Morristown, New Jersey. And it is still in existence today. The Seeing Eye is the oldest existing guide dog school for the blind in the world. And to her mother, she left $6,000 in cash and an annuity that paid out $1,800 per year. That's approximately $113,000 plus $34,000 per year when adjusted for inflation. Well, almost immediately challenges were made to her will. The first one, it came from her mother. And it was argued under New York state law at the time that no person could leave more than one half of their estate to charity if they were survived by their parents or blood relatives. That meant that Mrs. Mulhall was entitled to at least 50% of her late daughter's estate. Isabel's will made an unusual claim that she had, quote, received letters from extortionists, and that it should be, quote, distinctly understood that any person claiming to be my father is an imposter. Well, on April 19, 1940, that's nearly one year to the day after she had passed away, that imposter walked into a New York courtroom. An 89-year-old man named John F. Mulhall claimed to be her father, and he was taking a claim for his share of Isabel's estate. And this is where much of Isabel's story of her youth falls apart. You see, in 1879, while Isabel was still a small child, her father left for Texas to look after cattle interests of her grandfather. Now, he tried to convince Mrs. Mulhall to bring Isabel to Texas, but she refused. And until this very day in court, the couple had not set eyes on one another for more than 60 years. Isabel had clearly embellished details of her youth. She didn't come from a wealthy family, nor was her father a multi-millionaire silver mine owner. While he was a prospector for a while, he didn't earn much doing so, and he never sent a single penny back home to help support his wife and child. One fact that I do believe is true is that Isabel had been the central model for the mural at the Planters Hotel, but I couldn't find any evidence that she was a beauty queen at the World's Columbian Exhibition. Now, The September 24, 1893 publication of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch did report she had attended the fair with her mother, after which they were headed northwest for a few weeks, but there's absolutely no mention of her being a beauty queen, so I don't believe that she was. Meanwhile, was this man who walked into the courtroom really her father? You know, Isabel had warned that anyone who claimed to be so was an imposter. In court, he described how he married a young Susan J. Robinson, quote, in her mommy's parlor on Olive Street in St. Louis back on May 11th of 1874. He was completely unaware she had divorced him in 1881, quote, Ha ha, it was hidden from me. No one ever told me that's a cinch. When asked to identify the woman who he claimed to be his wife, the nearly blind Mulhall stepped down from the witness stand and squinted for nearly a minute before confirming, yep, that's her, that's Susie Robinson, that's the gal I married. He was able to produce their marriage certificate, daughter Isabel's birth certificate, and a family Bible that noted the date of their marriage. At the conclusion of the hearing, Judge James A. Foley ruled that Mulhall had proven that he was Isabel's father and he was entitled to one quarter of her estate. But Mrs. Mulhall was not pleased. Quote, I wouldn't touch him with a 10-foot pole. He never gave Isabel or me a five-cent piece in his life. Now what about her husband, Sid? Well, it turns out that Isabel and Sid had divorced three years prior to Isabel's death, but that didn't stop him from trying to regain the fortune that he had given her while they were still married. As previously mentioned, the two had agreed to a reciprocal will agreement 10 years after their wedding. But when the couple separated in 1926, they drew up new papers that nullified that 1919 contract. The catch in that new 1926 agreement was its sixth covenant, which forbid Isabel from, quote, annoying, molesting, and bedeviling Sid for the rest of his life. Well, she clearly didn't do that, resulting in the Federal District Court of Northern Indiana ruling that she had breached the 1926 agreement and that the contract rights of the 1919 reciprocal agreement were reinstated. In other words, Sid was entitled to the entirety of Isabel's estate, and he needed it. He had lost the bulk of his fortune in the 1929 stock market crash and was now worth only about $40,000, which was far less than the value of Isabel's estate. Well, not so fast. The decision was challenged and the appeals court invalidated the lower court's ruling. So Sid challenged the ruling all the way up to the Supreme Court, but they refused to hear the case. In the end, Sid would receive absolutely nothing from Isabel's estate. Just as it seemed that all the challenges to Isabel's estate were coming to an end, a new will suddenly appeared this document had been penned in 1934, which was a year before Isabel's final will had been written. In it, Isabel had left $5,000 to the seeing eye, $6,000 to her mother, $5,100 to Mrs. Elizabeth Beatty, and the remainder of the estate to her son, that's 19-year-old Robert Owen Beatty. The argument was that Isabel was not mentally competent when she drew up that final will, so therefore this older will was in effect. Well, the court didn't buy it, and the challenge was dismissed. On August 13, 1944, Barry Barron, who was the executor of Isabel's estate, handed over a check to the seeing eye for $123,205. That's more than $1.8 million today. Now, both of Isabel's parents were deceased at this point, so their estates were each awarded $35,000 apiece. After more than five years of legal haggling, the estate was mostly settled in the manner that Isabel had intended. Her fortune went to the dogs. Useless, useful, I'll do that for you to decide.
0: Kellogg, the greatest name in cereals, presents Wild Bill Hickok! past those Kellogg Sugar Pops, because here comes Guy Madison as Wild Bill Hickok and his pal Jingles, which is me, Andy Devine. We've got another rootin' tootin' Wild Bill Hickok adventure story for you. From this cereal you can eat out of the bowl or out of the box, the cereal with the sweetening already on it, Kellogg's Sugar pop. Today Kellogg's Sugar Pops, the cereal with the sweetening already on it. Bring you Wild Bill Hickok, transcribed in Hollywood and starring Guy Madison as Wild Bill and Andy Devine as his pal Jingles. In just thirty seconds, you'll hear the exciting story, Eight Hundred Feet Down. <laughs> Kellogg's Sugar Corn Pops are tops. Tops as a cereal with a little milk or cream. Tops as a snack right out of the box. Either way, you don't add sugar because the sweetening's already on them. They're shot with sugar. Yes, either way, you'll get plenty of pleasure eating those golden nuggets of ready sweetened corn. Enjoy sugar pops often. Have mom look for the package of Kellogg's sugar corn pops with the pictures of Guy Madison and Andy Devine riding on the front with the words shot with sugar.
2: I figured since a good chunk of today's main story took place in Cereal City, this commercial seemed like a perfect fit. Now, Kellogg's introduced it originally as Corn Pops in 1950, then changed it to Sugar Corn Pops the following year, and then to Sugar Pops. In 1978, the company started going backwards with the names. Sugar Pops became Sugar Corn Pops, and then it went back to its original name of Corn Pops in 1984. I guess to de-emphasize the amount of sugar in the product. Then, in January 2006, the name was shortened to simply Pops. But that proved to be unpopular, and it was quickly changed back to Corn Pops, which is what it is today, Kellogg's Corn Pops. Now, I have no clue if they've reduced the amount of sugar since I was a kid, but I checked in the three main ingredients today, and in Corn Pops are milled corn, sugar, and corn syrup, more sugar. It's good to know that they're still shot with sugar. As you just heard, commercial commercials from an episode of Wild Bill Hickok titled 800 Feet Down, and it was originally broadcast on January 27th of 1954. The show was a juvenile Western adventure that was designed to go up against competing shows, you know, like Roy Rogers and the Cisco Kid. As for how much of the show was based on the real life of Wild Bill Hickok, who lived from 1837 to 1876, my guess is that the show is purely fictional. While Bill Hickok began its run on radio in 1951 and would continue to be broadcast there until December of 1954, it then made the leap to TV the following year. Kellogg's Sugar Pops was so closely tied with Wild Bill Hickok that the show's star Guy Madison was featured on nearly every single box throughout the show's run on both radio and television. Occasionally, Kellogg's would replace Guy Madison with Andy Devine, who played his sidekick jingles on the show, and who you just heard at the beginning of this commercial. But it's good to know they're still shot with sugar. So here's a question for you: In 1907, ads aimed at housewives were running in newspapers in various cities across the United States that simply read, "Give your grocer a wink and see what you'll get." So what did the housewife get? Well, here's a hint. What they got was made in Battle Creek, Michigan. Well, hang around for a bit and I'll let you know the answer to this question at the end of this podcast.
1: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
0: All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. There are really many reasons to listen to our podcast, Big Picture Science. It's kind of a challenge to summarize them all, Molly.
1: Okay, here's a reason to listen to our show, Big Picture Science, because you love to be surprised by science news. We love to be surprised by science news. So, for instance, I learned on our own show that I had been driving around with precious metals in my truck. Before it was stolen.
0: That was brought up in our show about precious metals and also rare metals like most of the things in your catalytic converter. I was surprised to learn that we may begin naming heat waves like we do hurricanes. You know, prepare yourself for heat wave Lucifer.
1: I don't think I can prepare myself for that. Look, we like
0: surprising our listeners. We like surprising ourselves by reporting new developments in science and while asking the big picture questions about why they matter and how they will affect our lives today and in the future. Well, we can't affect lives in the past, right? No, oh, I, I guess that's a point. <laughs> so the podcast is called Big Picture Science and you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We are the hosts, Seth is a scientist, I'm a science journalist, and we talk to people smarter than us. We hope you'll take a listen.
2: In other news, Here are three stories that all have to do with last wills and testaments. On March 14th of 1925, 86-year-old George W. Hazeltine was lying on his deathbed in the Los Angeles rest home, and he wished to write his will. But with so few breaths remaining and no paper readily available, one of the nurses offered up her petticoat. And on it he left $10,000 to Lillian Pelkey, who was a nurse and owner of the rest home, $10,000 $10,000 to his nurse Madeline Higgins and the remainder to his great grandniece Lorraine Moody Richmond. He then signed and dated the petticoat and the two nurses signed as witnesses. Now Hazeltine had been known as the pauper of North Broadway and that's because he lived in a one-room shack and collected all types of junk. But to everyone's surprise his estate was estimated to be worth $500,000. That's about $7.5 million today. What was also interesting was that George did already have a formal will drawn up. In it, the bulk of his estate was left to his two attorneys. Then there was $10,000 to Pomona College, a large sum to the YMCA and the YWCA, plus there were various sums to a number of other people and organizations. So it didn't take long before this case ended up in court and there were 10 different parties that wished to have the petticoat will declared invalid, and that was on the assumption that Hazeltine was feeble and infirm at the time that he penned that uh, petticoat will. They all wished to have the former will recognized as his true wishes, which of course was of great financial benefit to all of them. Challenges to the petticoat will made their way all the way up to the California Supreme Court, where on April 2, 1927, The court ruled that the petticoat will was George Hazeltine's valid will. Now, the $10,000 that he left to his two nurses was invalidated because one cannot be both a beneficiary and a witness on the will at the same time. As a result, his entire fortune went to his 35-year-old great grandniece, Lorraine Moody Richmond. Next up, we have the case of 69-year-old Herman Strathman of Los Angeles, who passed away on January 11th of 1934. Well, about five weeks prior to his death, Herman told his close friend, Mrs. Ellen Gotts, to take special care of a stepladder that was inside of his house. After his passing, no will could be located. But then Mrs. Gotts remembered that strange advice that Strathman had given her. So she found the ladder, went out to the backyard, and scrawled on the bottom rung with the following words: quote, "I love her. I give my all to Mrs. Gotts. She my good spirit." Not long after that, a man named Henry Montanola showed up with a second will, which stated that he was the beneficiary of Strathsman's ten thousand dollar estate. But this was soon to be proven a forgery, and Montanola was sentenced to one to fourteen years in San Quentin. After which he was to be deported to his native Philippines. Then, Mrs. Gotts found another will that had been written on the back flyleaf of a Bible. Once again, it named her as the sole beneficiary. But relatives of Strathman questioned the authenticity of the writing on both the latter and that Bible. And while this was all being argued in court, Mrs. Gotts found a third will had been written on a window shade. Then two more wills were found written on dollar bills, followed by three more that were written on scraps of paper. Ultimately, the court ruled that the last will, that's will number nine, was the legitimate will and awarded the entire estate to Mrs. Gotts. And in our last story for today, on February 23rd of 1949, 93-year-old Eunice A. White, a retired music teacher, passed away in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Funeral services were held at the First Congregational Church, which was just a short distance from her residence on Hoxie Street. Her will, which had been written on October 22nd of 1934, had been handwritten on two sheets of paper and read as follows, quote, After all expenses are paid, I give the Massachusetts Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals all I have with the exception of $1 to my half-sister, Martha Smith of Pasadena, California, and $1 to Anna White, who had been amply provided for by her father, my half-brother. Now, $1 in 1949 would be approximately $11 today. The second page was titled Notes and said, 1. My reason for giving the little that I have to help keep from abuse those who cannot speak for themselves is that I consider the abuse of our dumb animals the worst crime since slavery. 2. It is my desire that whoever's appointed executor shall be a person who loves our dumb animals and that it be without bond. The little that I have is in the North Adams Savings Bank. Now, if you're thinking they found a fortune, you know, when they checked her bank account, that didn't happen. Now, no accounting was provided as to how much money was in the bank, but it was believed to be a very small amount. But then every little bit does help. So, earlier in the podcast, I'd asked you what a housewife would have gotten if she had given her grocer a wink way back in 1907. Did you know? Well, it's very simple. They got a sample of Kellogg's Toasted Corn Flakes. The product was one of those accidental inventions, and it all started at the Battle Creek Sanitarium, which was owned and operated by the Seventh day Adventist Church. John Harvey Kellogg was a sanitarian superintendent, and his brother William Keith, or W.K. Kellogg, was its bookkeeper. The story goes that one day back in 1894, W.K. accidentally spilled liquefied cornmeal onto a heating device, which of course cooked it into flakes. Cornflakes were born. And his creation proved quite popular with the guests at the sanitarium, and then former guests started requesting that the cornflakes be shipped to their homes. But the two brothers had a big falling out over this. You see, John Harvey would not allow his brother to distribute the product away from the sanitarium grounds. But W.K. disagreed and he decided, hey, you know what, I'm going out on my own. He set up his own company. So on February 19th, 1906, with the help of outside investors, the Battle Creek Toasted Cornflake Company was born. Their main product was called Kellogg's Toasted Corn Flakes. And to promote the new product nationally, an advertising company came up with the idea that they needed to create a bit of mystery. So the image of a pretty woman's face with one eye winking was placed on billboards and in newspapers in various cities across the United States. Beneath the image was the slogan, Wink at your grocer and see what you get, and the initials KTC, meaning Kellogg's Toasted cornflakes. When a housewife went to her grocer and gave him a wink, she was handed a free sample of cornflakes. Now, just in case a woman was too embarrassed to wink, the grocers were instructed to provide a free box anyway. Then, 10 days after the promotion began in each city, Kellogg's would take out additional ads stating that, quote, the secret of the wink is out. And that basically stated that the promotion was over and that one could go to their local grocer and purchase a full-size package of cornflakes for 10 cents. That's about $2.80 today. 400,000 samples of cornflakes were handed out, and the promotion soon proved to be too successful. Soon, other companies were copying their wink promotion. And one company, the American Rice and Food Company, figured out what Kellogg's scheme was and they beat them to the punch. They would take out ads before Kellogg's 10 day follow up ad appeared claiming that KTC stood for Keep to Cooks, promoting their Cooks line of rice products. Well, (laughs) Kellogg's wasn't too happy with this, and they sued for $100,000 in damages. Needless to say, the first big promotion where housewives were instructed to wink at their grocers, that helped to establish Kellogg's to become the mega brand it is today. Well, that brings the 150th episode of the Useless Information podcast to a close. I do hope you enjoyed that story on Isabel Mackay. You know, when I decided to do this story, all I knew was that she was pulled off of a train with all that cash and jewels. But as I researched further, I uncovered more and more and more. And by the time I was done, I had well over a hundred pages of research material to synthesize into one cohesive story. It took quite a while, a lot longer than I had planned. But I do hope I did a decent job in pulling it together and that it made sense. Now, there were some more gossipy type details that I opted to leave out, such as that she slept with a gun under a pillow to protect herself from her husband, or that when she needed surgery, she insisted her husband build a surgical room right there in their apartment. But I couldn't prove these things, and I opted to leave them out. I think the story kind of tells itself without those uh, little details. Now, there was one final piece that didn't fit into the story, and that was how Isabel's ex-husband, Sid, died. Now, in the end, he didn't have much left. He owned basically the Lake County Times and a few pieces of property. I think the building that it was in, that's about it. But as owner of the Lake County Times, for many years, he uses editorial power to campaign against the many hazards of at-grade railroad crossings. On August 30th of 1944, he was driving across the tracks on Torrance Avenue in Lansing, Illinois, and that's an at-grade railroad crossing, when he was struck by not one, but two locomotives and killed. He was 81 years of age. Now, I should mention I've been thinking for months about splitting the podcast into smaller pieces, smaller chunks. You know, maybe placing the main story in one podcast, or in the remainder in a second episode a couple of weeks later. Maybe even, you know, putting a, a show of all retro sponsors together or something like that. I even have some ideas from some new, for some new segments I'd like to introduce Now, my main reason for doing this is not to create chaos. It's really to move up in the rankings on the various podcast platforms. The problem is I only publish a new episode once a month, and I'm heavily penalized for doing so. It keeps pushing me farther and farther down in my rankings. Uh, In fact, on iTunes, I'm no longer even in the rankings on any of their uh, categories. What that means is that fewer and fewer new people are finding the show. So I'm thinking if I create some noise by putting out uh, more episodes, not increasing my workload dramatically, but by putting out more episodes, maybe I'll move back up in the rankings. And it's just something I'm toying with in my mind. I'm not really sure if I'm going to do it at this point. But don't hesitate to email me with your thoughts or suggestions. My email steve at uselessinformation.org. You can also use the contact form on my website, which is uselessinformation.org, or you can even contact me through Facebook. I'd be curious to know what you think. Just a reminder that my new book, The Flipside History, is currently available, and if you enjoy listening to the stories that I include in this podcast, I highly encourage you to get a copy of the book. Interestingly, the literary agent who represented me on my first two books contacted me last week. And that's because a publisher in Istanbul wishes to publish my first book, Einstein's Refrigerator, there. Now, I wrote that collection of stories back in 2001, and I'm surprised that it's held up fairly well after all these years. Now, some of the more obscure stories that I told in that volume are more widely known today, and that's just because the internet and how information spreads. But if you've never read it and you enjoy listening to this podcast, it is well worth checking out. New copies are readily available, but it can be found in libraries and elsewhere. Be sure to sign up for my Twitter feed. It's at UselessInfoCast, and you'll be among the first to know when a new episode's released. Again, the handle is at UselessInfoCast. Also, be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can just do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast, and it will pop up. And make sure you subscribe to the Useless Information Podcast. And you can do so through whichever podcast platform you use. And uh, the most popular ones I know of are Amazon Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeart, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn. Actually, there's a whole bunch more, but uh, those are the most popular ones. Anyway, thanks for listening. Take care, everyone. Bye.
1: according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You care about your money.
0: Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts.